a new book of the Bible, and it's going to take a while, but it's going to be exciting. It's kind of interesting in churches that go through books of the Bible, we tend to identify uh, what happened, not during certain years, but what happened during certain books. For example, Amanda and Charles met during the book of Ruth, which was kind of ironic and coincidental. Um, the, the Von Ruffs can say, hey, we, we came during the Gospel of Mark, you know, and then some of you say, hey, I, I think we had a child born during Deuteronomy. And so as our church goes through the years, we're going to start identifying different time periods by books of the Bible. And so we're going to have some babies born during Genesis because it's going to take about two and a half years. We're going to have some kids graduate and go off to college. We're going to have people get married. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to happen. And we're going to look back and say, hey, remember during Genesis that this happened? So there's a reason we're going through the book of Genesis, but I want to start off with the most read verse in all the Bible and the most studied passage in all of history. And we're going to start here. And it looks on the surface to be a very simple verse, but as we'll see, it's very complex. But let's give honor to the Lord by the reading of the Word of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and, called it, and, he, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and the morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. This is God's word. You don't have to pay very close attention to see that something is wrong in our world. When people don't get their way, they burn down cities, they start riots. The police have now become the bad guys. America has become a bad place. Divorce is off the charts and many people are wondering should they ever get married at all and if it's even worth it. Even though Roe versus Wade has been overturned, it's still legal in most states, and we are killing innocent unborn babies by the millions. What used to be obviously wrong is now celebrated, and we make Sodom and Gomorrah look like a, a, a kid's party. We have school shootings on a regular basis, and human trafficking is not on the decline in our so-called civilized world. It's on the rise. 26 million people around the planet are trafficked, are involved in forced slavery or sexual abuse. And we have children around the world starving, not because there's a shortage of food, but because there's a shortage of generosity. We have an abundance of food. We, we can buy a pair of shoes that could fill, feed an entire village in the Sudan for one month. The greed is the problem. We have a war going on in Ukraine, and this is just a glimpse of what the world will be like probably in our lifetime. It's so ironic that the generation that attends church the least has the highest anxiety, the highest suicide rate, the greatest percentage of depression. And so they turn to drugs, they turn to alcoholism, and you have to just stop and look at all this and say, is this what God intended for his world? If we are evolving, as people say, why are we not getting better? Why are we getting dramatically worse? Don was saying to me, you know, he said, in 75 years of living, this has been the worst few years he's ever observed in his life. And I think all of us can say amen. This is not, this, you, the wheels are falling off the wagon, folks. It's getting serious, and this is not just like, well, we go through cycles or whatever. No, this is, this is a worldwide global problem, and the only answer for God's people is to get back to Genesis, to get back to the foundation of the way God wanted the world to be and the way he's going to eventually make it when Christ returns. This morning's sermon is going to be very much an introduction, but this will help focus our lens on how to see Genesis and actually how to see all of God's Word. As I mentioned, this is the most studied piece of literature in all the world. Muslims study Genesis, Jews study Genesis, Christians study Genesis, people around the world. 
lonely people in a hotel room open the drawer and pull out a Gideon's Bible, and nine out of ten will start where? In Genesis, like you start any book. You start in the beginning. And so this is no small piece of literature we're taking on. It was written by Moses, although he's not mentioned by name. And the reason is because all of this happened before he was alive. And he is transcribing what God is telling him, what the, how the Holy Spirit's leading him to write all these things. These are things that he couldn't have known unless the Holy Spirit of God had revealed it to him. So the first five books of, of the Bible are commonly called the Torah, or we call it the Pentateuch. And really, it was originally one book, all called the Book of Moses. Um, Mark 12, 26 Jesus calls it the book of Moses, a, a singular book. He said, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? You know, he calls it about that way because don't, we don't have chapters and verses at that time. But that's what Jesus calls it, the book of Moses, because all five were written by him in one compilation. It is, it's helpful to have them separate so we know where to go. But anybody in here remember what is the most quoted book in the New Testament? Deuteronomy. I knew Ashley would know it. I was already looking in your direction. Right, Deuteronomy is the most quoted book in all of the New Testament. But Genesis is the most quoted in all the Bible. Because not only does the New Testament quote it significantly, all the other 38 books of the Old Testament quote Genesis and quote it quite prolifically. The most quoted part of Genesis quoted is the first 11 chapters. That is super significant because especially it was quoted by Jesus. Jesus took the first 11 chapters, not as myth, not as legend, but as historical fact. And it's not coincidence that today in our culture, even among so-called Christians, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are the most attacked. Because this is why the wheels are falling off the wagon, because we're acting like none of this is true, it's just fairy tale, it's just legend, and we're not taking it for what it was and what it is, history. And so, again, look where Satan attacks and you'll know where to follow Jesus references Genesis as factual history, not as legend, and not as mythology. In, in Matthew 19, he quotes from Genesis 1.27. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he also quotes Genesis 5 in Mark 10. He said, From the beginning, God made them male and female. There you have gender established right off the bat. Who would have thought that we'd have to Tell, teach people that there's two genders, you know, and yet this is where we're at. You know, isn't it ironic that for thousands of years, 7,000 years of world history, all of a sudden a bunch of 20-somethings know more than everybody else in the world and how many genders there are. It's just ironic and how the social pressure works, but God has established it. Jesus also quotes Genesis 5 in Matthew 19. He says, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and these two shall become one flesh. He defines what a family is and how a family best operates as a separate unit. If you have ever lived with your in-laws for any length of time, you know that's true, amen? <laughs> and so, maybe, maybe don't say amen, I don't know. Um, and it also establishes the, the, the union of a marriage and how that's supposed to, to operate. Not only does Jesus quote Genesis significantly, the Apostle Paul quotes Genesis 15 times in his letters. And that's just direct quotations. There's a whole lot more allusions to the, Old Testament, to the Old Testament and to Genesis specifically, but there's 15 direct quotations by the Apostle Paul. So Paul refers to Adam as a literal historical person who caused a literal historical fall. Those two significant historical facts tied together are super important because if you detach the literal Adam from the literal fall it messes up all of what we call soteriology the plan of salvation I'll talk to you about that here and let the scripture speak Romans 5.12 therefore Jesus um, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man okay if there's not a literal Adam where does sin begin which caveman or half monkey half ape First sinned. You know, where, where do we direct the fall? And he says, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. We are all connected to Adam. It's interesting, in anthropology, they thought that humanity came from four branches of different trees and things like that. Now they know by DNA, it all goes back to one source. 
right in the same geographical area the Bible says it all started. And so they learned, they learned a lot about DNA, and they've learned a lot about how we've all, we all can be traced back to one man. But not only did that one man genetically affect all of us, that one man theologically affected all of us. We've all in, inherited our sin nature through, that, through him. And so it says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Moses is a literal person. Paul says Adam is a literal person too. From Adam, a literal man who fell in the garden to Moses. So Paul takes him literally. Jesus takes him literally. I think if I take Adam as a literal person, I'm in good company. I've got the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and I've got the greatest apostle agreeing with us if we take Adam and Genesis literally. He says, for if many died through one man's transgression, who's that talking about? Adam. Much more the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounds many. So if we say that Adam is not literal, guess who his equivalent is? Jesus. And therefore, Jesus shouldn't be taken literally. You see the equation there that Paul and Jesus are saying, Adam's literal, Jesus is literal, Moses is literal, that we need to take it that way. A 2007 paper in developmental science by Paul Bloom, this was a research paper done by atheists and evolutionists trying to figure out why kids are so predisposed to creation and not evolution. They thought it was just because of their religious upbringing, but let me read it to you. It says, in the last few years, there's been an emerging body of research exploring children's grasp of certain universal religious ideas. Some recent findings suggested two foundational aspects of religious belief. Belief in the divine agents, in other words, that there's somebody out there causing all this, and a belief in a mind-body dualism. In other words, there's more than, I'm not just a body, I'm a body and a spirit. That kids naturally grasp that, that there's more to me than just my body. And all that seems to come natural to kids. And then an Evans research paper found that regardless of religious affiliation, whether you're Catholic, Baptist, Buddhist, or anything like that, a large majority... Five to eight-year-olds preferred creationist account of the origins of the natural world over evolutionary accounts. Kids who had no religious upbringing when they were presented, how do you think the world began? That a God or somebody created it or we just evolved? The overwhelming majority of kids choose a creation story. Now, that's not because kids are dumb. It's because kids are smart. If kids walk by a bunch of Legos and they're organized and stacked into a building, they're going to say, hey, who made this Lego building here? When they go by their school, they're like, hey, who built this school? How long has it been here? When they go to downtown Houston, they see this amazing building. They go, wow, Dad, who made these buildings? And they aren't intelligent enough to know that if you go by a universe and you go by a tree and you go by the Grand Canyon and you look at stars, you ask that, who made these? They automatically connect that there's a who, not a what. And they also know this, that they would not live in their Lego building, but they would live in a house. They make the connection that the more sophisticated the structure, the more intelligent the designer. And so therefore, they can look at skyscrapers and say, wow, some major construction company built that. But when they see the stars, they're saying somebody bigger than human beings has built all this. They see the connection between the proportionate intelligence to the proportion of the sophistication of the design. So the book of Genesis means beginnings, or origins. The phrase in the beginning, which three words in English is one word in Hebrew, barashit, which just means beginnings, God. And, and so it takes three words in English to say it the way we want to understand it. And so Genesis explains to us the, the origin of 14 major things or major themes, okay? These 14 are super important. First of all, Genesis explains to us where the universe came from. It explains it very clear. Scientists have been trying to figure this out for years, and they, they haven't had, their theories keep changing. It's not like there's just solid science versus the Bible. No, there's scientific theories that keep going all over the map and changing as they do more and more study. And then there's the Bible who says where the universe came from, God. Also, the whole concept of order and complexity is found in Genesis. The laws of thermodynamics make it very clear that Everything is in decay. Your car is not as great as it was the first day you bought it. Amen? <laughs> You're, you leave a house. Just leave it alone and watch it fall apart. Look at your own skin. 
Sorry to go there, but look at, look at anything about you. And which direction is it going? Down. Look at civilization. Look at anything. Just watch it go down. And yet evolution requires that things become more complex. That the world start off in chaos, but it gets better. And the Bible teaches the exact opposite. The world start off perfect, and it's on its way down. And science tells us that. Not just the Bible. But yet evolution requires it defies its own science. The solar system, our immediate solar system, the Bible explains where that came from. The atmosphere and our hydrosphere. Did you know that it wasn't until about 180 years ago they understand the whole process of hydrology? And the Bible made it very clear from the beginning. Job, the oldest book in the Bible, made it very clear about the water cycle and where all that came from. In fact, there was a time when scientists said that a universal flood like Noah's flood was impossible because there's not enough water in the oceans and in the atmosphere above to rain to combine to cover the earth. But the Bible didn't say that the rains of the planet covered the earth. It said what first? The fountains of the deep. And guess what they just discovered seven years ago? That there's more water below the earth's surface than there is on the top of the entire planet. So the, once again... As always, the Bible is right. Skeptics thought it was impossible for rain to cover the earth, but now we know that, again, the Bible agrees with science more than their science does. Genesis 7:11 says, on, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven, which is rain, were opened. Rain was just a secondary uh, uh, participator. Scientists from Northwestern University in, in Evanston, Illinois, recently announced that a reservoir of water that is three times the volume of all the Earth's oceans has been discovered beneath the planet's surface. This underground water supply rests some 400 miles beneath our, beneath our feet. Notably, this could explain the origin of the planet's water. Thank you again, science, for agreeing with the Bible. Finally, it also explains the origin of life. Where did life come from? It's obviously by a designer, an intelligent designer, not just a, a, an accident. Where did different types of people come from? All of mankind, it's all found in Genesis. Where did marriage come from? The established, the important, beautiful picture of marriage. Who defined what it was? How should it succeed? What makes it fail? It's all found in Genesis. Evil, where did evil come from? The world has a hard time explaining this. Again, evolutionists, how do they explain the off-the-charts inordinate proportion of evil? You can't see it anywhere in nature. You do not see, you see animals killing each other maybe to survive, but you will not find a tribe of monkeys that will wipe out a million other monkeys. And yet humans do it too, all the time. Of course, one of our first people we think of is Hitler. He killed six million. Stalin killed 60 million of his own people by starving them to death. You don't see this kind of horrific evil anywhere in the world except in the hearts of man. How, how do you explain that, evolutionists? If we're the most sophisticated, most advanced, evolved creature, why are we the most evil? You have no explanation, but the Bible does. The Bible makes it very clear where evil has come from. The Bible defines, and specifically in Genesis, defines the, the formation of government. And here's some types of government found right there in um, Genesis. It's not condoning these. It's just saying these are what appeared, and God gave them the opportunity to try to govern one another. But of course, as always, they failed. Where's, what's the origin of the world religions? It's found in Genesis. And then most importantly, or at least pre predominantly, the origins of God's chosen people, Israel. It's found in the book of Genesis. So these 14 different foundations all set us in the right direction to understand Genesis. In fact, one-fifth of Genesis is about the creation of the world. Four-fifths of Genesis is about God's chosen people, Israel. That's important because we are now God's chosen people. God still has his ethnically chosen people, Israel, but we are the spiritual Israel. We are the Jews indeed because we're Abraham's seed. And so what's really fascinating is Genesis covers from 4,000 B.C. to 1,800 B.C., 2,200 years of history, that is more than the rest of the Bible combined. 
So half of world history, or at least half of the history of the Bible, is covered in 50 chapters in Genesis. So it's a pretty amazing stat there to give us proportion. So I, I believe that Moses wrote the Pentateuch during the wilderness wanderings, after the Jews left their slavery in Egypt and before they entered the Promised Land. So in about a 10-year a, a span, Moses is writing these books. And again, the, he's writing Genesis, which was before he was on the scene, so it's, he's getting it from God and from other tools that God used. But do not believe, if, and I, many of you like to do additional research on, on the books we're on, which I would strongly encourage you to do that. In fact, if you want some help or resources, I'd be glad to send those to you. But there's a lot of liberal theologians who believe that four different people wrote Moses, uh, wrote, wrote the Genesis, and Moses wasn't one of them. That, that's just baloney. Just, it's just people trying to sound super smart. The church for 2,000 years has always understood, or 1,800 years, always understood who wrote the book of Moses. Jewish rabbis always who knew it was Moses who wrote the book of Genesis and the first five. But in the last 200 years, German higher criticism has creeped into the church and liberalism, and they're always trying to figure out, this person didn't really write that, they didn't really write that, and that they don't believe, these are the same people who don't believe the Bible is inspired. So when you read that kind of stuff, I would just uh, disregard it. Do your research, though. Don't just take my word for it. There's four primary people discussed in the book of Genesis. The first one is obviously Abraham. Think about that. God called this man with no Bible, no church, nothing. Just called him out of a pagan world to say, hey, leave everything and come follow me. And, of course, we see his descendants, Isaac and then Jacob. Who do you think the fourth prominent person is? Very good, Joseph, yes. In fact... Joseph is talked about more than the, other, than the other three are talked about. And the reason Joseph is is because he's a type of Christ. He's the one who left his father's house to go down into the world, which Egypt is a picture of, and to suffer, and then to be to one to save many of his brothers and to be reunited with them. So Joseph's a beautiful picture. We'll spend a lot of time on him. Next year, I guess. <laughs> There's three primary regions discussed in the Bible. There's Babylonia, where the Garden of Eden and the expansion beyond that took place. There's Canaan, uh, where the, the Promised Land will eventually be. And then, of course, there's Egypt, which, because they went down in that. In fact, you can even, here's a NASA uh, satellite picture that basically traces the biblical steps of Abraham. And you can see, and of course, show, proving that the Bible is very... Uh, uh, accurate in its geography. What's also interesting is people criticize the Bible and say, well, camels weren't even domesticated till you know, 700 years after Abraham, but Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they talk about using camels. Well, now they've found camels' uh, bones in different mines, showing that when they were mining copper, they were using camels to haul out the copper, and they found, once again, the Bible is true. It isn't interesting that whenever they don't know, what do they say? The Bible's wrong. They don't say we don't know. The Bible might be right, might be wrong. No, they said they want to find stuff to prove the Bible wrong. And whenever they're, when archaeology proves the Bible right, do they ever come back and retract and say, hey, hey, we were wrong? And when they do that over and over again. But anyway, that's, that another thing is they said that the Abraham was more of a, a Western European name that those writers of the Bible forced into the Bible, that nobody in the Babylonian area era was named Abraham. That's more of a white man's name. And so therefore they forced it into the literature and they just made this stuff up, this story of Abraham, he didn't exist. And then archaeologists found where the Ur of, Cal Ur of, Cal Ur of the Chaldees was and they found basically what's the equivalent of a Chaldean phone book. And guess what the most prominent name was? Abraham. It's as common as Juan or John. You know, it was just all over the place. And again, once again, they were wrong. And that's what the archaeologists found out. Um, in fact, in uh, Nature magazine, um, they found all kinds of evidence proving that the, that the camels were true and all kinds of things backing up Abraham, all this stuff. And this is a secular evolutionary magazine that came out with this information. And so they've always tried to disprove Genesis, but again, they always fail and archaeology and science always backs us up. There is nothing in Genesis that is anti-science. There is things in Genesis that are anti-scientific theory, but not anti-scientific anti fact. 
But this is super important. If you don't get anything else out of this morning, get this one verse. This, is, this just opened my mind. Um, John 5, 46 says, if you, Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he, not a collection of four rabbis, but he, Moses, wrote of me. If you do not believe his writings, if you don't believe Genesis, how will you believe Jesus? Do you understand why our public school system and our universities want kids not to believe that God created heavens and the earth? They, they don't want, want them to believe that Genesis is literal and real. It's because if they don't believe Moses, guess what? They can't believe Jesus. That, I'm, that's not my opinion. There's Jesus' words right there. Jesus says, hey, the first five books, they point to me. If you don't believe them, then you've just ripped the foundation out from under the belief in Christ. So it starts off in the beginning. The beginning of what? Not the beginning of God. In the beginning of time. In the beginning of everything. That one word beginning is super important because it establishes time. Many times kids will say, well, what was before God? The key word in that question is before. You are using a time phrase and inserting it in when time wasn't even invented yet. If God invented time, there is no such thing as before. There's no such thing as after. Those are all time terms, and God's the one who invented time. Let me give you a very poor analogy, but it's something our little minds can grasp. Picture a circle and put something on any point in a circle and say, what's before or after that? If I point here, well, wait a minute. Is that before or is it after? But if, if eternity is a circle that's complete, and sometimes it's with this symbol here, okay, which is not meta-Facebook. That's not, I mean, yeah, they use it, but it's not right. But anyway, but picture a circle or an ellipsis. Any point on that could be before or after. With God, it's all the same because he's eternal. But, so there is no before or after God. And so in the beginning, God created. There's the energy, which is part to making the other parts of the universe work. And so this is something that is inserted. It looks like a super simple verse on the surface, but it's incredibly scientific. Albert Einstein, in 1905, in 1905, determined that the universe is made up of three things, time, space, and matter. Those three. And that you can't have time without having space. You can't have space without having matter. You can't. All three had to come into being at the exact same time. That's how God spoke the worlds into existence. So all three were there at the same time. And so what you have is, in the beginning, time, God created the heaven, the space to put it, everything in, and the earth, all the matter or the material or substance to put everything in. And so we have the, the scientific trilogy here of time, space, and matter all together at the same time create reality, which is what we're in right now. But time is not matter, and matter is not space, and space is not time. But yet you can't separate the three without having a true reality. Does this look familiar to you? How about the Trinity of God? The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. But yet all together are God. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one person that, that is expressed in three eternally distinct people. And so you see that God created not only man in his image, he created the entire universe in his image. In fact, scientists have discovered that, that the, it's a trinity of trinities. That time is what? Past, present, and future. It's a trinity in itself. That space is, is a trinity. Height, width, and depth. And that matter is, is a trinity. Liquid, vapor, solid. Isn't it? It's a trinity of trinities. And yet that's, that's the way we understand God. That he, cre he has his fingerprint all over the, his universe that he created. Romans 1.20. Look at this. His invisible attributes. See this right here? God's invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and his divine nature, the nature of God, one God in three persons, have been clearly perceived. How? In the entire universe. Land, sea, and air. Solid, liquid vapor. Past, present, future. Look at the trinities that are everywhere. They're clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God's divine nature, his thumbprint, is all over his creation. And so therefore... 
We as our own little scientists, we are without excuse because God has put us in a laboratory that points to him. You say, but Gary, you can take that six days of creation as literal, but I believe in science and how it explains the origins of the universe. And they act like science is one thing and faith is another, but I'm telling you, they go together. But you can say science. Well, my question for you is, which science? Which science are you talking about? You see, up until 60 years ago, scientists all believed in what was called the steady state theory, that everything in the universe has always been. It's just an eternal state. Everything has always been as it's always been. And then when they did a radiomagnetic study of microwaves in the back, uh, background, they found out that the universe is expanding. So they threw that steady state theory in the trash and they said, oh yeah, we have to believe in a big bang. And now scientists are running from the big bang fast and furious and now many of them, there's like 10 different theories now. Then one of the most popular is called the string theory. And don't even ask me to how, explain that. And then there's also the inflation theory. And it, they keep changing all these origins of the universe. But not one of them explains who caused all this. You see, what, what this trinity needs is ener an energy to make it happen. And God's the one who caused it. In the beginning, God created. There's the energy that made it happen. And so, going back to Albert Einstein again, after his study of the universe, here's what he had to say. And again, I wouldn't quote him on everything. He didn't become a born-again Christian or anything like that. But he said, I believe in a God who reveals himself in the orderly harmony of the universe. Albert Einstein, one of the smartest men the world has ever known. He also goes on to say, the more I study science, the more I believe in God, not less. Scientists in our generation have thought, you know, well, now with, with the invention of the internet, and information and, and the dissemination of facts out there, people will become less and less religious, and the exact opposite has happened. The world is becoming more and more religious. Not necessarily all good religion, but you don't see us evolving past it. You see people increasing. And so that you go back to the question your kids might ask is, where did God come from? Well, here's a, a debate that's fascinating that I think you'll, you'll uh, will answer that question well. confused. Being philosophically consistent and being a very honest person, I'm sure you can tell me where God came from. This is the atheist. And it, in, addition, in addition, once you've told me where God comes from, uh, please try to clarify how you can figure that a spiritual force can have an impact on a material universe to create it. I think that some years ago we already talked about that kind of thing in uh, philosophical circles at any rate by posing the question if angels are made of uh, spiritual matter and a pen is made of material matter and spiritual matter displaces no space how many angels can dance on the tip of a pen? <laughs> I have a sense of sort of uh, uh, reversal experience here but, but please do, go ahead you got five minutes. Now, I just want to know which question. That's all right. You may take the rest of the minute. We're supposed to do one question at a time. Which one would you like? That was part of the format for the debate. So which, which I question? I want you to fill in the story of the rest of the uh, beginning of the universe. God, spiritual matter, impact on material matter. Okay. So two questions. All right. Go ahead. All right, your question, where did God come from, assumes that you're thinking of the wrong, uh, obviously it displays that you're thinking of the wrong God, because the God of the Bible is not affected by time, space, or matter. If he's, if he's affected by time, space, or matter, he's not God. Time, space, and matter is what we call a continuum. All of them have to come into existence at the same instant, because if there were matter but no space, where would you put it? If there were matter and space but no time, when would you put it? You cannot have time, space, or matter independently. They have to come into existence simultaneously. The Bible answers that in ten words. In the beginning, there's time, God created the heaven, there's space, and the earth, 
there's matter. So you have time, space, matter created a trinity of trinities there. Just, you know, time is past, present, future. Space has length, width, height. Matter has solid, liquid, gas. You have a trinity of trinities created instantaneously. And the God who created them has to be outside of them. If he's limited by time, he's not God. The guy who created this computer is not in the computer. He's not running around in there changing the numbers on the screen, okay? The God who created this universe is outside of the universe. He's above it, beyond it, in it, through it. He's, he's unaffected by it. So for... And the, the concept that a, of a spiritual uh, force cannot have any effect on a material body, well then I guess you'd have to explain to me things like emotions and love and hatred and envy and jealousy and, and rationality. Uh, your brain is just a random collection of chemicals that form by chance over billions of years. How on earth can you trust your own reasoning processes and the thoughts that you, you think? Okay, so... Your question, where did God come from, is assuming a limited God, and that's your problem. The God that I worship is not limited by time, space, or matter. If I could fit the infinite God in my three-pound brain, he would not be worth worshiping, that's for certain. So that's the God that I worship. Thank you. I showed that because he said it much better than I could. <laughs> Understanding that, that that analogy for your kids or teens or any skeptics come at, come, you come across is again, the guy who made the laptop is not in the laptop. He's outside of it. He's bigger, stronger. He's controlling the laptop. The laptop is not controlling him, and he's not re restrained by the limitations of the laptop. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, time, space, and matter. And that's parallel to the most familiar verse in the Gospels, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning... And John chose that phrase on purpose. He wanted to create a hyperlink back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so what we see is in Genesis, Jesus is the God who spoke the world into his existence. That's not just my interpretation of those verses. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1. It says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. Wow, that's powerful there. You see, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that God the Father created everything, and then he created Jesus who finished the world. But all means all. All things were created by Jesus. There was nothing before Jesus. Jesus is not a created being. He is part of the triune God, the second person of the Trinity. And it says, and he is before all things, and in him, in Christ, all things hold together. Scientists still do not understand how neutrons and protons and things like that can spin around each other but not come apart. It's because God spoke them into existence, and God, by his word, holds all things together. And let me go back to this verse right here. It says, for all things were created for him. The mountains are for Jesus. The stars are for his glory. The, everything you see that is beautiful is created to glorify God, including you and me. You are created for the glory of of Jesus Christ. It, it's like the most succinct statement of, of what is the purpose of life. It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our purpose in life. That is your mission in life. You may have a different plan, but let me tell you, God's design is better. You are for him. You are to serve him, to glorify him, to love him, and to enjoy him. And yet, this is not the way our world is. There's something deep down inside of everyone that says, hey, this is not right. This is really messed up. There's got to be more to life than this. And we are, we are throwing God out of our planet and saying, we can do it. We can do it. And we stink at doing it. Think of all the technology, all the money, all the resources, all the United Nations, everything man tries to do to make it better. He does nothing but make it worse. This is why... We were created, not this, but something much better. Jesus has a plan for us. So you may already believe that Jesus is the creator. He's like, yeah, hey, I'm following everything you're saying. This is great. I already know all this. I learned some interesting facts that maybe I can use in a discussion, but I already know that Jesus is the creator. But my question for you this morning is, but does your daily decisions show it? 
do you make decisions on your entertainment that God created me for something important? Do you make decisions on your job that I'm, the, I'm answering to my creator? He made me for a purpose. Are, are your sexual relationships or anything, how you raise your children, are you realizing that, wait a minute, God has a design pattern. Am I following my creator's pattern? Do I really live for him? It says here in uh, verse 18 that Christ in Colossians, he says that Christ is the head of the body, the church. Gary Milborn, Pastor Stan, the elders, we're not the head of this church. Who is the head of this church, people? Jesus Christ. He is the head of this church. He is the beginning. There's that phrase again. He is the firstborn from the dead that in everything, everybody say everything, and everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent means he is in charge first and foremost. Every aspect of your life, every decision you make needs to show that Christ your creator is the preeminent one. And here's why. Verse 19 says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's beautiful right there. We could just stop and think about that. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all right there in human flesh, not separated, distinct persons, but yet completely God, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. You see, all this mess right here will not be fixed by the Democratic Party. It will not be fixed by the Republican Party. It will not be fixed by the United Nations. It will not be fixed by a premier world leader. By the way, Google the speech by the new King Charles and listen to how he describes the Antichrist, and that's what the world needs right now. Just look it up, read it, watch it for yourself. None of those things will fix all of this right here. The only one who can reconcile all of this is Jesus Christ. And he will make all those problems right. He will reconcile them to himself, whether they're on earth or in heaven, making peace. How did he make peace? By the blood of his cross. Have, have you experienced the peace of God? Are you at peace with God? The Bible says we're all born natural enemies of God. We're aware that he's there, but we rebel against his authority. We want to do our things our way. But through, through Christ dying on the cross for us, he reconciles the world to him. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has what? Eternal life. Not will someday after they die. At the moment you put your faith in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, at that moment you have eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Now isn't it interesting that Jesus just changed a word there on purpose? He says if you believe you have eternal life. But if you do not obey, because it's impossible to truly believe without obeying. If you say, oh, I believe in Christ, and I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. I got saved when I was 12, blah, blah, But you're not obeying? There's some disconnect there that shows your belief may not be real. Now, I'm not talking about perfection. None of us do that. But is the pattern of your life a desire, striving to be obedient to the, to the gospel of Jesus Christ? In fact, it says if you've not believed and you're not living a life of obedience, you will not see life and the wrath of God remains on him. You say, well, I don't want to believe in a God who punishes people. Really? You think all this should just go away and God just says, oh, no problem. If any of this happened to your child, you'd want a judge to swing the gavel down hard and sentence that criminal for what they did to your child. So we do believe in a God of wrath, and we believe that based on this right here, what we, what we are doing to this planet, I think it's well-deserved. So do you know Christ? If you're a believer, is every decision reflecting that he's your creator and you are his creation? And if you don't know Christ, you could trust him today. I'm going to ask all believers to bow your heads and pray for the hearts of unbelievers maybe watching online, maybe someone here in this service, that the Holy Spirit of God would take the blindness away that Satan brings and open their hearts so the gospel and the light of the gospel could penetrate their hearts. Father in heaven, thank you so much for loving us. Father, I pray that if there's one here who doesn't know you personally, Maybe they've made a series of fake decisions, just going through the motions, but today they know they're lost. I pray that they would find salvation in Christ and give their life, 100% of it, to you. And that they would receive your gift of salvation on the cross as the only payment for their sins. 
We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you made a decision to trust Christ today, there's my cell phone number. By the way, if you know Christ and you just have a question that you want to talk to me about privately, you can text me anytime. My cell phone number is right there. And do you know someone who would benefit from hearing this Genesis series? Man, start inviting people so they can come and hear this truth as well. Pray for them and invite them. Um, so I only covered one verse today. <laughs> There's 1,533 verses in Genesis. So at that rate, we will finish the book of Genesis in March of 2051. But no, I'm going to cover, Lord willing, seven to ten verses is my goal. Uh, but this introduction was absolutely necessary. Many of you are on version and we're connected as friends, so I sent out the invitation to start this reading plan tomorrow. If you haven't uh, seen this or got an invitation, you can join us, okay? Send me your name. I'll try to send you the invite. If you don't have... The version app is totally free. It's pretty amazing. In fact, those of you who are pretty diehard on version, you now have the option to choose Revolution as your church. So go on there on the search mode and search for Revolution Church, and it will come up and say, this is my church, and then people will see that as well, and they can connect on version with you as well. All right. Um, Ashley, would you like to help me with question and answer time? Okay, so text in your questions now. If you're watching online, there's my number, so you can text those in as well. And um, actually, the first question this morning is yours. And you can raise your hand if you'd rather to do that, uh, to ask a question. So there it is. Again, if you're watching online or if you're here in the house, text in your question. All right, so the question is, why isn't Eve listed as the source of the fall of man? Great question. So I don't remember where it is, but in one of Paul's letters, I think Galatians, but not 100% sure, it says Eve was beguiled. In other words, she was tricked. But Adam was supposed to be the head of the household. And what's interesting is it says, and Eve gave her the fruit and then gave to her husband who was there with her. So here's Adam watching his wife be tricked, and he's doing nothing about it. And so he knew full well what he was doing, not that he was any smarter than Eve, but she was the one being deceived by Satan, and so it's charged to his account. He was so, older than her. And he was older than her, yes, <laughs> yes. By, I don't, we don't know how many days. But anyway. we, we don't know. But I think it's interesting. Actually, by hours, but go ahead. Probably. That's a, yeah. But I think it's interesting that in a place where women were not considered, especially at that time, as uh, equal with men as far as worth is considered, that the Bible specifically does not call Eve out at all. They had the opportunity to lay blame at Eve's door. Jesus did and did not. Yes. So, okay. In fact, that's, that's another interesting fact that why the, um, the apocryphal books are not accepted in Scripture because it says that, um, that because women won't enter into heaven that Mary Magdalene was turned into a man. And just kind of crazy stuff. And people want to say, oh, what about the Gospel of Mary? What about the Gospel of Thomas? It's like, just read them and you'll see that they're, they're, they're nothing better than a cartoon magazine. And, I mean, and just... no one has ever debated whether they needed to go in in the last two to 3,000 No, years. but all of a sudden this generation knows right. everything, yeah. Also, God wrote a book, the Kootenai Church yeah. podcast you recommended. Amazing. Highly yeah. recommend to anybody. Yeah, Kootenai Church, God wrote a book. Look for their podcast. It's, it's really good. Really good. Uh, question, if you read through the Bible, how long do you think it will take? It'll take you however long to do one verse. Good question. <laughs> so correct me, Pastor Stan, if I'm wrong. If you do four chapters a day and five on Sunday, isn't that the pattern? You can go through the entire Bible in one year. That's a good reading plan. There's other reading plans, but it's an average of four and a half chapters a day to make it through the Bible. And that's a great goal. And there's Obviously, you can start from Genesis and go to Revelation. That's a good way of reading it. Nothing wrong with that. They're laid out in order for a reason. But an, another recommendation I'd make is what's called the chronological Bible. So it, it will like start with Genesis 1-1, but it also will skip you fast forward to John 1-1 because it happened at the same time. And so it constantly does this back and forth as it happened chronologically. So that's really cool, too. And it will synchronize, like, the gospel readings. So when you read about Jesus healing a leper in Matthew, it will flip you over to the next, same account in Luke. So you can cause it chronologically the same time. And version has tons of plans through the Bible. Some of them are slower paced, like the Bible in three years, which is a good thing. But everybody should at least once in their life go through the Bible in a systematic way. 
Some people do it every year, which is fantastic. I also recommend the Bible Project's um, reading plan in U version. It's mm-hmm. been really good, and it ties in a lot of their videos and on uh, conceptual videos. Yeah, there's a just do one of them. All of them are great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, according to Christian history, should Christians honor and remember our Christian history? Also, which ones should we honor? I, I'm assuming it's meaning Christian history after the Bible. Okay. Um, I know the Catholic Church is big on because uh, the, the preeminence of saints and when they lived, but then also different events in the church history. Um, I don't know. I, I, don't, I think there's so much in the Bible I'd rather focus on. I'm not saying ignore history um, because those who don't study history are destined to repeat it. That's the old adage. Um, but I wouldn't put it, spend a lot of time focusing on it. That's why we don't do... Lent and other seasons like that, because it's more part, it's more church history than it is church, uh, than it is Bible doctrine. Uh, this one's not a question, but it's a, a prayer request for the whole ter- church to pray for um, this person's friend's mom, who has colon cancer and went to the hospital last night, and she needs prayer. Okay. Um, quick thing, I also learned recently that Jesus, and at the time of time of Jesus. Um, Jews actually participated in Hanukkah, which I never thought about. Yes, Hanukkah and Purim, Purim yeah. which goes back to Ruth. Yeah. So yes, that's, that's, that's a good observation. Very um, cool. I have a question. I, heard, I was reading about this this week. Um, someone made an observation, and I found it on the, the, bi- the church's website, like their, their thinking on this, but I haven't found anything in Jewish tradition about the preparation of the Passover lamb and the anointings that they do when they inspect the hooves and inspect the head. And there was a uh, parallel drawn between the two anointings of Jesus before the crucifixion of oil on his feet and oil poured on his head by two different people. Oh, wow. That is Um, fascinating. I was trying to look for some Jewish tradition information, but of course it's not there, which suggests either it's you know, just interesting, or um, maybe it's suppressed because, like Isaiah 53 is suppressed a lot of times in Jewish um, teachings. Sure, sure. Speaking of suppressed, um, I use DuckDuckGo instead of Google, and you'd be surprised at how dramatically different the results are. DuckDuckGo? Yes. Okay. It's the number two search engine in the world, and it doesn't filter things politically or religiously. And so you do a search on... Well, I won't get political. But you do a search on a certain person's name, and on Google, you can't find any conspiracy theories about them hmm. or anything about them. And all of a sudden, you do the same search on DuckDuckGo, and it all comes up. You know, and, can you and, and DuckDuckGo? Because I have no idea. Yeah, yes, you can. And <laughs> okay. then you can switch it. And like I said, and, and the good thing about DuckDuckGo is it doesn't track your searches. Because, you know, you all of a sudden start searching on pizza, and next thing you know, on, your, on your email, you start getting all kinds of stuff about pizza. Because they're watching everything. DuckDuckGo says, no, privacy. We're not going to let anybody see you. We're not going to sell your results. So anyway, but it also helps when you're searching for things in the Bible. Because Google, you search something about Mary Magdalene, and Google will say, she was the wife of Jesus. Boom, 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 boom. It's like, nobody believes that. Just some liberal guy works for Harvard. But you do it on the same search on DuckDuckGo, and there'll be all kinds of wonderful stuff about Mary Magdalene. So that's another thing about suppression. All right. I think that's it. All right, cool. Let's stand and let's sing to our creator. Thank you.